Hi, this is John Stringfellow of No Strangers here on 88.5 FM WCUG Cougar Radio. I'm here with a, a cup of coffee and a, a good poem, which personally uh, is interconnecting with literature and a uh, overall, I suppose you could say, history in a way. Um, and of course, we are still in the 16th century in poetry. It is just coming towards an end, I should say. And this will be our last poem of the 16th, moving into integrating into the 17th century. So I'll, I'll use this poem as a sort of bridge going in from the 16th century, moving in uh, to the 17th century. So for today, I chose the poet Charlotte Smith, um, in which case this poem uh, called Nepenthes uh, follows a very interesting suggestion to love or friendship, uh, I think. And, and this suggestion being that the her speaker in this poem is struggling with um, the loss or without having love or friendship in my opinion and so with this uh, I wanted to share this poem not because I wanted to act as a bridge moving forward into the next century and so forth uh, but also I saw that there was an interesting connection between this poem and with the Odyssey uh, which happens to be something that I'm currently reading in one of my classes uh, and is also regarded as one of the oldest and most beloved uh, myths or legends or, or stories in uh, world literature. And so, uh, being one who loves the Odyssey, <laughs> I wanted to share this poem and I wanted to connect, you know, and, and uh, bring in, you know, the element of the Odyssey that is present uh, within this poem. Uh, so, the poem Nepenthes by Charlotte Smith. Oh, for imperial Polydamna's art, which to bright Helen was in Egypt taught, to mix with magic power the oblivious draught of force to staunch the bleeding of the heart, and to cares wane and hollow cheek impart the smile of happy youth unaccursed thought. Potent, indeed, the charm that could appease, affection's ceaseless anguish doomed to weep, o'er the cold grave, or yield even transient ease, by soothing busy memory to sleep. Around me those who surely must have tried, some charm of equal power I daily see, but still to me oblivion is denied, there is no nepotheth now on earth for me. So, really interesting poem there. Um, the overall structure of the poem in which the rhyming of it, um, I find it to be, in a way, almost sing-songy-like, in a sense. Uh, kind of A-B-A-B um, -A -B sort of uh, rhyming pattern there. Um, from what I can see just at a first glance. 
And of course we can see the, the sort of older use of uh, punctuation here with there being a uh, exclamation mark right after O, but the four, the letter F in four isn't capitalized. O4 Imperial Polydomna's Art. Uh, we also see uh, another older <laughs> word, uh, or, or it's uh, a capital O with an apostrophe ER. Uh, essentially, it is supposed to be over uh, in a way to say, you know, something over there. Or uh, over in the sense of being a general term for a collection of things. You know, it's, it's over there. Uh, but for anyone who's familiar with the Odyssey, uh, you'll probably recognize the title, uh, or at least recognize the connotation or the, the um, how do you say, uh, the representation or inclusion of uh, the Nepetheth, or I believe it's uh, also pronounced as Nepenthes. In the book four uh, but the Odyssey and this is if you're reading the Robert Flagg's version of the Odyssey uh, right around I believe lines 240 between 250 there is a, a stanza where it says then Zeus's daughter Helen thought of something else into the mixing bowl from which they drink their wine she slipped a drug heart's ease dissolving anger magic to make us all forget our pains no one who drank a deeply mold in wine could let a tear roll down his cheek that day. Not even if his mother should die, his father die, not even if right before his eyes some enemy brought down a brother or darling son with a sharp bronze blade. So, here's the question. What is Nepetheth or Nepenthes? Uh, in literary terms, it is a drug described in Homer's Odyssey as banishing grief or trouble from a person's mind. We also know that it is a uh, an older uh, world pitcher plant uh, from the literal de description of uh, this plant life. Uh, though the plant is real, the the connotation or the, um, the the literary meaning behind the plant is fictitious. Uh, it's not actually meant to make you forget about your your grief or forget about your past uh it's just it, it's just used as a symbol more or less so knowing that within homer's odyssey uh what the nepetheth or nepethes does uh to those who drink it uh we can understand looking back on the poem itself and make that sort of uh, bridge, <laughs> again, a bridge or connection uh, between the Odyssey and this poem. So starting off, let us ask what is uh, Imperial Polydamna's art? So looking in and researching uh, we understand that Polydama is an Egyptian figure from Greek mythology um, who is also mentioned in the Odyssey
uh, we understand that that with this figure um, that she may in fact represent uh, joyfulness or in many cases represent uh, I guess what you could say without grief uh, or without sadness uh, and that representation there that sort of um, relevance to her character uh, is mainly due because of the Nepetheth, uh, because she is the one who has the Nepetheth with her and gives it to Helen, which Helen uses it we in the literary terms we connect her um with that sort of sentiment that she represents joy or uh, she represents without grief. So knowing this, uh, looking back into the poem, uh, the first lines being, O oh, Imperial Paladamna's art, which to bring Helen was an Egyptian taught, to mix with magic power the oblivious draught, to force, to staunch the bleeding of the heart. So those being the first four lines here, um, we see again, she, Polydamna, Polydamna's art here is the passing or giving uh, of the draught of Nepetheth to Helen, uh, in which this sort of skill for including the Nepetheth or mixing in the Nepetheth with the wine uh, is an art <laughs> taught in Egypt, um, at least in connotation to this poem uh, and in the Odyssey. And so uh, Charlotte Smith here describes that scene in uh, the Odyssey where Helen uh, mixes in the Nepetheth with her wine and gives it to her guests uh, and then describes what it does, uh, what the Nepetheth does for those who drink it. Uh, so from there we understand a force to staunch the bleeding heart and to care's wane hollow cheek and part, the smile of happy youth unaccursed with thought, potent indeed, the charm that could appease, affection ceaseless anguish doomed to weep, or the cold graves or yield even transient ease by soothing busy memory to sleep. So from there we understand that this is meant to stop the bleeding of the heart. Uh, this is meant to wane and hollow cheek in part um, so from that we understand that when we think of a bleeding heart we typically link that to the idea of pain we understand that to in a romantic sense uh, the loss of love can be used as an example uh, even friendship to an extent can be thought of so if this is meant to blind one from experiencing sort of that mental, uh, emotional pain, uh, we understand that it completely blocks off that pain. It, it doesn't just soothe it, it almost erases it in a way, uh, because we can see the smile of happy youth undercursed with thought. Um, essentially, you, you, it not only eases you, but it completely eradicates those 
hurtful emotions that you experience. And many would think like, well, that sounds like such a wonderful thing. <laughs> you know, I am in a lot of pain. You know, I, I would want this sort of pain to go away. And in medicine, we know that we have things such as uh, opioids uh, and such as uh, medicines like morphine, for example, uh, that are used to sort of eliminate pain. Uh, and of course, you know, there's other stronger, more potent medicines like Oxycontin, uh, that, that are used in medicine that eliminate physical pain. But this is not something that eliminates physical pain. It eliminates entirely mental and emotional pain. Uh, you know, if essentially what this comes to is if, if you drink this uh, mixed in with your wine or mixed in with whatever you're deciding to drink that day, um, you forget entirely about any past memory that you had where you experienced something terrible or if upon that day um, you experienced something that hurt you or encroached upon your well-being drinking this would eliminate that entirely because from here we see that affection ceaseless anguish doomed to weep o'er the cold graves or yield even transient ease by soothing busy memory to sleep um, so we understand that, you know, things such as, you know, the cold grave that's, you know, has a relationship with death. We, we associate uh, the idea of a cold grave being a death uh, that has long since been. Uh, we understand that, you know, doomed to weep, um, you know, those emotions, you know, creep in on us and, and cause, you know, us great pain. Um, but drinking this will get rid of that entirely you won't have to experience any of that by drinking this essentially um and that it soothes busy memory to sleep so you know when we think of busy memory um the first thing that comes to my mind with that is anxiety uh being nervous when i think of busy memory i'm thinking of you know individuals including myself where we get so wrapped up in our past or get so wrapped up in what we're working with and it, it becomes overwhelming uh, to a point where we become incredibly anxious um, so for people you know who suffer from anxiety uh, or of course have terrible memories of a, of a hurtful painful past um, this you know draw to this drink this mixture sounds incredibly amazing and it sounds as if uh you know we, we should have something like this <laughs> um but I'll, I'll get back into that in a second um so we understand with the last four lines uh, uh charlotte smith her speaker uh says around me those who surely must have tried some charm of equal power i daily see but still to me oblivion is denied there is no nepotheth now on earth for me um, so in this last four lines, she doesn't necessarily say that those around her, those who she may know personally or must understand some sort of backstory, uh, that they too have suffered in the same pains uh, and that they have attempted or found a, a different means of easing that said pain. Uh, but for Charlotte Smith's uh, speaker here, uh, says that she, or at least gives the idea 
um, the the sort of underlying message that she too has tried, but that uh, oblivion has denied her, uh, and that there is no Nepetheth now on Earth for her. Um, so she doesn't necessarily say what sort of pain is being caused upon her. Uh, we can maybe pull from, you know, the fact that what the Nepetheth is known to ease, we can maybe uh, form some sort of idea from uh, from there and think about maybe she's suffering, you know, from a ceaseless anguish. Uh, maybe she is doomed to weep. Uh, maybe it has some sort of uh, relation to uh, death. Uh, or and, and perhaps that she too suffers from anxiety. And so with that, uh, we can maybe draw some sort of conclusion or draw some sort of uh, idea related to uh, those, those details. Uh, but as she mentions before, uh, Oblivion has denied her. The, the idea of Oblivion being uh, f- a void, essentially, a complete and utter nothing. Uh, and in relation to the mind, uh, Oblivion, in this sense, is to, I guess, void out uh, any sort of past or any sort of memory and, and just completely restart uh, to go blank, essentially. Yet she, as much as she wants, you know, to experience or to have oblivion come upon her and erase the, that pain, that past, um, she realizes that there is no Nepetheth, especially not now, uh, on Earth for her. So, in a way, we can see that in the literal meaning as being you know, you know, the Nepetheth is gone. There is no Nepetheth for anyone anymore. Um, all those who used it already, it's all used up. Um, so anyone from here on out is just going to have to suffer. <laughs> you know, so every, from here on out, everyone is just going to have to um, have to essentially deal with it. There is there is no cure. Um, but if we look into that. Again, if we if we read that again, there's no nepetheth now on Earth for me, and so we, it, for obviously you can't see this, but uh, the now is in between two commas. Uh, there is no nepetheth, comma space now, comma on Earth for me. Um, so now, if we were to take that out, um, we see that it just says there's no nepetheth on Earth for me. Um, so now, for me, in this sense, could be easily just placed in and easily taken out. Um, I think Smith uh, used now as a way to sort of mask the message. You know, it, it, it for me, the use of now has a sort of presence, uh, a, a sort of fix into the present. Uh, because if we were to just eliminate or, or erase now, uh, the sentence only reads, there's no Nepetheth on Earth for me. So there is no Nepetheth, uh, or there's no Nepetheth, excuse me. Um, what that says there is that it's not saying that the, the Nepetheth is all out, that, that you know the Nepetheth has been all used up. It's saying that there never was any Nepetheth to begin with. Um, and even if there was, it's certainly not here on Earth. Um, 
So with using now, that sort of adds the elements that there used to be, that there that there at one point Nebethith was a, a sort of plan that could be acquired and that could perform uh, such a medicinal uh, remedy for those suffering from mental pain, from anxiety, whether it be from their past or any sort of present uh, transgressions that they're experiencing. Uh, but really, truly, I think what Charlotte Smith here is saying is that she's not saying that Nepeth was ever there. I really do believe that she's saying that Nepeth really wasn't ever uh, a medicine to begin with. It wasn't uh, a plant used for that. Um, that people have more or less used that symbology so frequently that it has become common knowledge even if it is misinformation. Um, so in a way we see here that Charlotte Smith's character um, she is too romanticizing the idea that Nebethith can do all these wonderful magical even things uh, for those who consume it uh, but in the end she realizes the reality of it is that there is no magical cure there is no uh, perfect medicine that will uh, appease or um, relieve her of such pain um, so that makes it at the same time uh, it makes it grounded in reality, yet also takes away um, the sort of reality that the literary context of Nepetheth has come to be known. Um, so, when thinking about this poem, it makes me wonder if Miss Charlotte Smith here was fully aware of, or at least if she was aware of society knowing that Nepetheth isn't real, or if she saw many of her colleagues or much of society, in which case Nepetheth was thought to be real, uh, in the same ways that, you know, the, the pleasure dome of Kublai Khan was real, or the same mythologies behind, you know, gods uh, of, of Egypt and Greece and Rome. Um, I'm wondering if Nepetheth, in this sense, uh, within this poem and within the time period that it was written in and uh, most likely read, uh, I'm wondering if Nepetheth follows along that, that that gray line of maybe it's real, maybe it isn't. We don't know for sure. Maybe it truly has these wonderful medicinal properties, and then again, maybe it's completely fake. Um, so I'm wondering if... Charlotte Smith here was trying to address that issue, trying to address that many people may have thought Nepetheth was real or uh, romanticized it so much that it became common knowledge. And she's trying to say that, unfortunately, no, it's it's not real. Uh, but what's really, really intriguing to me is that reading this with more modernize, I should say, uh, in this day and age, uh, it's very intriguing that this poem has a connection to mental health. Um, in today's society, we know mental health is a very, very much a serious, very much a real thing. Um, anxiety isn't just something to be brushed off, it's an actual affliction upon one's person, um, and that it shouldn't be 
you know, disregarded. It shouldn't be made light of. So, it being that this poem was written in the 18th century, sorry, I cheated. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I really thought that... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really thought that this would be an important poem to include within the transition from the 16th to 17th century because of its connection with the Odyssey. Uh, but it makes me wonder that what was the state of mind in terms of mental health? I mean, I myself, I can't say that I have done enough research or know any historical doctrine or physical written documents that describe mental health during this time period. Um, but it also makes me wonder if those who thought of mental health back then, what was sort of the connection, you know, between mental health and between um, what people thought as being real or not? Did a lot of people um, believe that mental health was indeed a serious infliction? Or did many believe that it was just something that could be brushed off? And again, I personally cannot say that I know for sure. Um, part of me believes that, you know, mental, uh, mental health wasn't fully considered back then as it is today. But... It's so, so intriguing to read poems like these um, in reading how they have been able to stand the test of time and still bear meaning. Um, and I, I feel like I know that I say that pretty frequently um, with poetry. Um, that I'm, I'm more than certain that there's been more than enough times that I've made it a point that this, oh, this poem, it was still relevant today. It's still meaningful for us today. Um, but as, as often as I say that, it's nonetheless true, at least nonetheless true for myself. Um, but I, I think what makes it so intriguing and so important to recognize is the fact that with each generation over time, ever since this, you know, poem was written, it's had a different interpretation. It's had a different meaning. Um, so it, it makes me wonder, you know, if you can imagine relevance on a scale um, or on a graph like how relevant has that been throughout the times how relevant has the idea of mental health been relevant uh, throughout the time um, and I know this isn't a history podcast but I, I can't help but include <laughs> history with uh, poetry because it, it has such a strong relationship um it, it, it really truly does when you think about the contexts, uh, the underlying meanings within poetry. Um, and when reading poetry as old as this, um, I wonder if... I wonder if this sort of poetry will always stand the test of time, you know? I, I really do wonder if people will look upon this poem and still remember it in the same light as we think of it now um will there be someone in the future you know 20 50 100 200 years from now who will read the same poem that i just did and who will have the same opinion or thoughts uh, upon its interpretation it's very interesting it's very very curious indeed
Uh, but for today, that is all I have for now. Um, again, I'm sorry I cheated. Uh, <laughs> I will I will take a bounce back into the 17th uh, 17th century as promised. Um, but I, I couldn't help myself and but to include this poem uh, because I wanted to include the Odyssey, and I also wanted to to make it a point um, of how important the Odyssey has been uh, to our history, not only through literature but also through society. I mean, if you really think about it, the Odyssey has been represented numerous times, uh, retold numerous times throughout the ages, and this poem. Uh, this epic of the Odyssey is, is incredibly old. Um, not as old as, you know, such as the legend or story of Gilgamesh, uh, but this one, in turn, is, is still incredibly old. Um, and, I mean, you see this, this epic being uh, retold time and time again uh, by new translations. Uh, we see it in movies such as Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, we see it in you know, television such as, you know, The Simpsons did an episode about the Odyssey. Um, we see it retold through different eyes, uh, through different books. Uh, for example, uh, one of the most well-known representations or retellings of the Odyssey is in James Joyce's Ulysses, which is very intriguing in the sense that it takes a lot of the elements from the Odyssey and sort of flips them or, or reforms them to fit the narrative of Ulysses. But it still has very strong connections and really strong ties to the Odyssey. Uh, a lot of the characters are represented uh, within Ulysses from the Odyssey, but they're represented in different ways. Um, for example, in the Odyssey, we all know as Odysseus as being this very brave, very bold um, individual with a large uh, pride for himself, uh, a hubris, if you will, uh, and in a way is blessed by the gods with incredible intelligence and incredible wit um, and wisdom to more or less navigate his way through each trial and each tribulation he comes across while on his way home to Ithaca. Uh, and we also understand that within the epic, in the Odyssey, uh, essentially the course that Odysseus takes with every instance that he comes across ever since the Trojan War um, has been incredibly hard for him. It's been, it's been a, a really true and powerful journey. Um, And it's a journey that takes him, if I'm not mistaken, the course of, you know, 20 years, uh, 20 years away from home, you know, two decades away from his family and loved ones, lost in the middle of the ocean, lost to mysterious lands and fallen into the hands of various gods and goddesses um, to be tested and to be um, brought brought before judgment um, which is incredibly incredibly hard to do especially in Odysseus's case um, for someone who's you know hasn't seen his wife or son in 20 years he's constantly having to battle and constantly having to outsmart um, his enemies and those who impose uh, upon his journey home well 
as opposed to that, the the tale or story of Ulysses, written by James Joyce, which is a retelling of the Odyssey, are one of our main characters here is a man by Leopold Bloom. Uh, Leopold Bloom, excuse me. Who is a, if I'm not mistaken, is within insurance or finance. Um, and instead of it taking him 20 years to get back home in Dublin, Ireland, it takes him over the course of a single day. Um, as opposed to Odysseus's wife, uh, Penelope, who is constantly barraged by suitors and she tries her best to make them go away or tries her best to stop she tries her best to make them stop trying to marry her um, yet at the same time she doesn't wish to offend them um, Leopold Bloom's wife Molly is blatantly cheating on him um, she's sleeping with other men um, and Leopold Bloom knows this in fact in Ulysses he, he knows that he uh, his wife is unfaithful to him and that she's sleeping with other men uh, granted I myself haven't read the book Ulysses fully uh, but I do plan to uh, as soon as possible I also understand that it's an incredibly hard book to read uh, one of the hardest within uh, literature uh, in terms of its use of non-linear plot and uh, stream of consciousness writing. The fact that each chapter of the book is written in a different way. Understanding it's very much a, a trial in and of itself to complete and read through and still be able to understand and comprehend everything that Joyce is implementing. Uh, but that's just another example of how important the Odyssey has been uh, how, how much of, of it has inspired and how often it's been re retold um, another example of this uh, is William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying uh, in this instance the Odyssey is more or less retold in a very very different way um, and isn't as prominent or isn't as fully realized within Ulysses. Uh, when reading Ulysses, each chapter is named after one of the characters in the Odyssey. Um, and using context clues and using um, interpretation, we can make connections and see how Ulysses is related to the Odyssey. But with As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, it's a little bit different. Our <laughs> um, Odysseus in this could be one of any of the main protagonists. Uh, personally, I like to interpret as I lay dying uh, that the father, Anne's, uh, who's in charge of the uh, Bundren family, is supposed to be our Odysseus. Um, he's a very older man. He's very weak. Um, he has a hump on his back. His, his feet are mangled after years and years of hard field work. Um, he has no teeth. He has a gray stubble of a beard he chews on tobacco um, and is uneducated to say the least um, but he also has 
this sort of relation to Odysseus in the sense that he has to stay true and he has to see his journey through. Where Odysseus goes off, you know, trying to make it back home over the course of 20 years, Anne's here has to try and make it to Jefferson County, uh, or is it Jefferson City, I believe, actually, um, to bury his dead wife, uh, Addie. Which takes over, I believe, the course of a week or maybe two weeks. Um, so where Homer's trying to make it back home, Anne's is trying to keep his promise to his wife that he will bury her with her family uh, in their family graveyard in Jefferson. But while reading this text, we understand that Addie herself was unfaithful as well, just as Molly in Ulysses is also unfaithful. Uh, and I won't spoil that. Uh, we, we see characters such as Darl, uh, Jewel, Cash, Dewey Dell, Varnament. Um, and it may be more difficult um, with the untrained eye or without the proper time to examine and evaluate these characters and uh, their relationship to the Odyssey. Uh, but we could see Darl, in a sense, as being kind of like Telemachus from the Odyssey. Uh, Darl is probably one of the most intelligent and most uh, philosophically, at least philosophically aware of his position in life, as well as his family. Um, while at the same time, he's also he also has this underlying um, sense of trying to bring some form of redemption, some form of truth to his family. Um which his family indeed has been plagued by many trials and has been plagued by um, others looking upon his family indifferently. Uh, in fact, many look upon Darl indifferently. But I, I strongly encourage anyone who is interested in the Odyssey to look into these retellings through Ulysses, through Faulkner, um, both of those reads are not easy reads by far. Um, it takes a lot of patience, uh, and it takes a lot of takes a lot of concentration uh, because Faulkner tells his story in the terms of a sort of backwater, uh, uneducated Mississippian family uh, on a journey to bury their mother, uh, while Ulysses tells his story in a very wild array of different styles and different uses of, of uh, words and so it, both of them can be very mentally straining if if, uh, if, you, if you take on these challenges um, but I, I really do hope that this episode um, though, though I cheated a little bit uh, I hope this episode has been insightful uh, and also I hope it encourages you to look into such uh, literature uh, and I know many of us have probably read as I lay dying in high school uh, and hated it or some of us have tried to read Ulysses and just had to put it down because it was just too much uh, but give it another go give it another try there's no there's no rush you know uh, especially if you're in college or if you're an adult you know there's there's no there's no rush to finish up these books you know within you know a month take your time take take it you know a spoonful at a time um it reminds me of the old saying, uh, 
you know, there's only one way to eat a whale, and that's one bite at a time. So think of it that way. When you reread the Odyssey, or if this is your first time reading the Odyssey, uh, when, when if you're reading As They Lay Dying or Ulysses for the first time, uh, take it take it one bite at a time, and I, I promise that you will find enjoyment out of it, especially if you love literature, uh, if you love examining those certain uses of style, uses of metaphor and symbolism, uh, those literary techniques, if you enjoy finding them and interpreting them, uh, I promise all three of those texts will have something for you. Um, if, you if you attempt to reread them or read them for the first time. But that is all I have for today. Uh, again, I promise I'll go back. <laughs> I won't cheat again. Um, and we will continue our journey through uh, or and move into the 17th century, into the 18th century, and, and so on and so forth uh, with each week. I hope you all are having a good day, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, please feel free to message me. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, or you can uh, find me through uh, CSU. Uh, I'm fairly, fairly involved with the English department, uh, or at least I try to be. Um, but I hope you all have a great day. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Columbus State's Common Department for the space and equipment provided for the show. Thank you to Dr. Gibson, the department chair. Thank you to Dr. Getz, WCUG's faculty advisor. Uh, you can listen to this show on 88.5 FM Cougar Radio, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.